You remain standing and turn with me to John's Gospel. John in the 15th chapter will take up where we left off a few weeks ago. That is with verse 9. John 15 and verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. These things I command you, that you may love one another. Thus far, the word of our God, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray together. O living God, great and glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are assembled before you. We have been magnifying and lifting up and exalting your name through those means of grace that you've appointed these elements of prayer and reading the scriptures, singing your praises to you and to encouragement of one another. Father, now as we continue with the ministry of the word, particularly the preached word, would you magnify your name in our midst? Pray that you would grant clarity to the one who preaches in clarity and hearing and understanding to all assembled here, that we would be a people edified in the presence of our God, built up in our most holy religion, and equipped that your Holy Spirit would be at work in all this, and that we would see Christ and he'd be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As we come back to John 15, let us remember what we learned from the first part of this chapter, probably one of the more familiar passages in John's Gospel. I am the vine, and ye are the branches. My Father is the vine dresser. Jesus called on all those who are his disciples to abide in him. We'll hear a little bit more about that and what that is. And what we learn is that when we do abide in him, when we do abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are fruitful in Jesus. And it follows then that if we're not abiding in Christ, we are fruitless apart from him. But in him then we are to pray in Jesus' name so that we may live all to the Father's glory. We'll see some of these same themes in this passage before us this morning. There, there's an overlap or a recapitulation, uh, declaring again and again. Uh, those of you who are uh, engaged in instructing, maybe it's as a parent. I don't know that we have any classroom teachers here, but one of the things that you're reminded to do is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you told them, uh, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. It's a, the matter of repetition, and we see that uh, in the Scriptures often. Because we need that for we are often dull of hearing, slow to hear, and slow to understand. Before we take up the next point from where we left off, I want us to look back to the beginning. Not to the beginning of John, though this certainly is connected, but back to the, the, the book of Genesis, back to the Garden of Eden. 
back even before the fall of Adam. Our first father, Adam, the first creature, uh, the, the lineage of Christ, we're told that Adam, the son of God, he is the firstborn, uh, first of the creatures, first uh, fashioned by God from the dust of the earth, and God breathed life into him, and Adam was sinless, and he enjoyed communion with God. We see the second chapter of Genesis says uh, he walked with God, and God brought the animals before him, and he named them. A reflection of the Creator, even in Him as a creature. There's sweet communion that Adam enjoyed with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, we imagine what that must have been like. It was sinless. For Adam was sinless. He was undefiled. The relationship was unhindered and without any barriers in it. Moses describes then, after um, the sin, after the fall in chapter 3, a reflection back to the former time that God would visit Adam. Um, the word is interesting. It's the same word for breath or wind or spirit. Sometimes it's translated as the cool of the day or the pleasant time of the day. And uh, commentators, they speculate. Was it in the evening? Was it in the first thing in the morning? What time of the day was it? And I think that's to miss the point. Whatever time of day it was when God came to walk with Adam, that was the pleasant time. There could be no more pleasant time in it as Adam would be called away from whatever labors he was involved in to commune and fellowship with God. What a sweet and wonderful time that must have been. What we know, though, is Satan came. And he tempted Adam. He deceived Eve. And Adam rebelled against God, his Creator, against God, his Father, he rebelled and he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that God says, of this tree you shall not eat of it. And immediately, Adam died. Now we know that he goes on to live out physical years, some 960-some, I believe it is. But immediately he died, and it's evidence because what's the first thing? It's that time when God comes, and he and Eve, uh, thus far she's called uh, the woman or the, the wife, uh, and they hide themselves, and they've taken from the plants and fashioned a covering for the reproductive organs because there's this awareness of them that they're going to beget sinners. And indeed, that's the case. We all are sinners coming from Adam according to ordinary generation. But immediately, Adam sinned. And he lost that communion and fellowship with God. He was fearful as he heard God approaching. He was not prepared to meet with Him. By their fall, our first parents lost communion and fellowship with God, and we all sinned in them and fell with them in that first transgression, and thus that is our condition. What's remarkable now as we think of the text before us of Jesus, who is that seed of the woman that God pronounced and on the occasion of the sin? God comes uh, as the first gospel preacher. God brings the first announcement of the gospel, declaring that there will be a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent bruises his heel. First pronouncement of the gospel. Well, that seed of the woman is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is there in the upper room where we find ourselves in John's Gospel. And he is speaking of marvelous things. He's speaking of the restored fellowship with God that he has come to bring in himself. Uh, to bring through his blood. To bring through his sacrifice. But also through his obedience. Indeed, everything and all things that we have are in him. A few of us had the occasion to be up at Grace Community Baptist Church in North 
Providence where Rob Ventura ministers. Some of you know him. And uh, Ian Hamilton was there. Um, my wife and I were only for the evening session. But one of the things that uh, Brother Ian drove home is we talk of justification. And we should. We speak of sanctification. And we should. We should celebrate these things. And we speak of many other things. But so often we speak of them as disconnected from Christ. Our justification is Christ. Our sanctification is Christ. We have life in Christ. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by faith in Christ. We are not sanctified apart from Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. Without Christ, we have nothing. It is all in Christ. It all encompasses in Christ. And I think that's center in this passage before us. Is Jesus is talking about how we can experience and know, how we can walk in um, and that joy that Adam had before the fall, that we can commune with God. Jesus teaches that his disciples can love him. He calls them to love him and to love one another. And all this is the result then of what Jesus has done. Yes, we are justified in him. We are sanctified in him. We are glorified in him. We are brought into loving fellowship with the Trinity through Him. And we, if we will indeed abide in His love, our joy may be filled. We may be filled. We can experience something of what it was like for Adam to walk with God. And it can be a pleasant part of the day. Whatever that time of the day is when we would come apart and meet with God. I'm going to use four main headings. The Father's love for Jesus. uh, Jesus' love for His disciples. The disciples' love for Jesus and the disciples' love for one another. You see the theme all through this passage is love, beginning with the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father, Jesus bringing us to love Him and the love of the Father, and then in turn to love one another as joiners in Christ. Our theme then is love and joy are perfected in obedience by those who have new life in Jesus Christ. Love and joy are perfected in obedience by those who have new life in Jesus Christ. So we begin with the Father's love for Jesus. First, Jesus tells us, as the Father loved me. Notice the tense. It's past tense. The Father loved him. The Father has been loving him. Now, one of the things we need to keep in mind, Jesus is speaking as the Son of Mary. He's speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. He's speaking as the seed of the woman. He's speaking as the second Adam. As as the Son of God, there's, there's nothing in his relationship with the Father and the Spirit that has ever changed. It's unalterable. They are one. There's no friction, no division, no confusion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is speaking in this passage as the second Adam, as our Redeemer, as the Mediator, as the one who has come to bring us to God. And he says, the Father loved me. I point that out because we might say, well, of course he did. You're the Son of God. But Jesus is saying, as the Son of Man, as he calls himself, as Paul refers to him in Romans 5, as the second Adam is the one who's come to fulfill and to do what the first Adam failed to do. The Father loved him. We saw that when John baptized Jesus there in the Jordan. The Father spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, the same pronouncement. And though it was not uttered, God spoke through the resurrection again saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And all of this was carried out by the person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, but the Son of Mary, the Son of Man, the Father, loved him. And the Father continues to love him from all eternity past, but particularly Jesus is loved as the mediator. He came into the world to do the Father's will, and the Father loved him. This is what John tells us in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the work of the mediator. This is what Christ has accomplished, and the Father loved Him. Along with this, then, in order to carry out His work of mediation, the Father gave all things into Jesus' hand. So that through him, the world might be saved. And indeed, there is salvation found in no other name under heaven, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would be saved from your sin, if you would approach unto God, if you would know that pleasant and sweet communion fellowship with God, it is through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He is the mediator. We find ourselves here in the upper room. Um, Jesus has been announcing that his hour had not yet come. His hour was coming. We are now in that time in John's account when the hour has come. The events are unfolding that will result in Jesus being tried and found guilty of sins and crimes that he has not committed. But yet it was the Father's will that he should be crucified at the hand of evil men. And we're in that window. And in that window, as Jesus walks through this hour, He comforts himself because the Father loved me, as he said. He's comforted in this reality that he is doing the will of the Father. The Father loves him. All is unfolding according to the will of the Father. He's doing everything the Father has given him to do. And he is comforted that his Father loves him perfectly and without hindrance. Second thing that Jesus declares here is that he abides in the Father's love. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So the Father loves Jesus and Jesus is abiding in that love. Uh, He is continually loved by the Father and He continually loves the Father. But Jesus is saying it's through His obedience. He keeps His Father's commandments. And for Him it was even the death of the cross that Jesus obeyed the Father. It pleased the Father to bruise him for our transgressions. We read in Isaiah 53, so graphically, so specifically, so alarmingly declared what Christ endured for us. But in Psalm 89, it is declared to us concerning Christ, he's speaking nevertheless, my loving kindness, Actually, this is the Father speaking to the Son. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. The Father was faithful to his Son, even as the Son was faithful in obedience to do the Father's will. He abided in the Father's love. You see, that's what Adam lost. As long as he's obeying God, he's enjoying that communion with God, but when he disobeyed God, he can't abide in the presence of God. Indeed, as sinful creatures, apart from being appointed by God for salvation, a sinful creature is not loved by God. The wrath of God abides upon the ungodly. 
And indeed, judgment and wrath will fall upon them. And the scriptures speak, particularly in the Psalms of the wicked who have no Christ to redeem them, that God hates them. And Christ speaking through the psalmist says, my soul abhors the enemies of God. It's only as we're in Christ that we would enjoy the blessing of God. And here we see Jesus as the second Adam, keeping all the commandments of God. What a contrast. Adam's in the garden with such abundance. Honestly, we cannot comprehend. You can think of the, the most beautiful garden you've ever been to, uh, the, the most fruitful fields or orchards. Um, I think when we were in Chile years ago and we were south of Santiago, it was the harvest season and it was just super abundance of all these crops being gathered in. We take all of those best places in the world and put them together and they pale in comparison to what was in the Garden of Eden. It was a glorious place. That's where Adam was. And God said, eat from any trees, except for this one. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he disobeyed. He rebelled. Jesus, on the other hand, we know of early in his ministry, the Spirit carries him out into the wilderness place, and he eats nothing for 40 days. He's, he's in a desert region. And he is famished because he has a physical body. God, of course, sustained him in that because a human body can't go 40 days without food. And nonetheless, the tempter comes and he assails him. Even as Adam was assailed in the garden where there was abundance, Jesus is assailed in a place of poverty and scarcity. And he's obedient. He was abiding in the Father's love. He did the will of the Father. And thus Jesus declares that he abides in the Father's love. Thirdly, Jesus declared, therefore, because of his obedience, he abides in his Father's love. I've made some overlap out of these two points, getting ahead of myself, but nonetheless, they're true. In verse 10, Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, when we were in the earlier part of John 15, uh, we were considering the question, what is it to abide in Christ? that we look to Him. We, we use the word with a, an urgency, a fervency, that we would seek Him, that we would follow after Him, that we would seek to use uh, and, and apply all the things that He has supplied to us. But ultimately, it comes down to an obedience. And it becomes very clear in this passage. That's, that's what it is to abide in Christ. Jesus says, as the God-man, as the second added it, He continued to love the Father. And so He went through it all. He went on in it all. And He did not fail to do all that the Father had given him to do. Now when we consider ourselves, we have broken all of God's commandments. And therefore we are unworthy of the Father's love. But even before that, we have this problem of original sin. I, I quoted from the Catechism earlier that we all sinned in Adam and fell with him in his first transgression. That original sin is, is our sin. It's the corruption of our nature. It's who we are. And it renders us unable and unwilling to obey God. We're not worthy of the Father's love. But Jesus was. He has done what we could not do as man. Yes, the God-man, but let's think about the reality. As man, fully man, fully in our humanity with the, the weakness and the ability to suffer. We've already talked about is the hunger that he experienced. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He obeyed even to the point of shedding His blood for the washing away of our sins in order to bring us to the Father. Are you redeemed? Are you redeemed in Jesus Christ? 
Have you been washed with the blood of the Lamb? Has He removed your guilt and stain with His shed blood? Has Jesus paid it all for you? He did so in our humanity. And the Father loved Him. Yes, as the Son of God. There was no break in the Father's love. And it cannot be so. But as the Son of Man, the man of God's own choosing, He abides in the Father's love because of His obedience. Now before we go on, we make this point often, and it's important to make it now. God does not accept us because of our obedience. We don't win the favor of God because we obey. We cannot secure our salvation because we're obedient. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift. It is a gift of God. The salvation, the grace of God is a gift. The faith that we would be united to Christ is a gift of God. These are the workings of the Holy Spirit apart from us, independent of us. God does this work of salvation. And therefore we are justified in Christ apart from what we have done. But what Jesus is talking about here, He's talking to the 11 who have remained. Judas has gone out. The 11 who remain are already united to Him by faith and He's talking to them about these matters. Using Himself as an example of how He's abiding in the Father's love. He's going to build on that and apply it to us in just a moment. But there He is in relationship with the Father. And if we are in Christ, we have relationship with the Father. We can know something of what Christ speaks of here for Himself. The love of the Father as He abides in the Father's love. And so we move then, secondly, to Jesus' love for His disciples. Note with this pattern of love declared, that of the Father for Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus says, I also have loved you. It's the plural, y'all. Verse 9 again, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you all. Notice the comparison. As the Father... Just as the Father, with that same matter of love that the Father has shown me, I also have loved you. This is not the love of man. This is not an emotional matter. This is who God is. God is love, John will write in his first letter. This love that is God. Jesus, I love you like my Father loves me. That's breathtaking. That's stunning. I don't know if this is the right word. Gobsmacked. Jaw-dropping. Astounding. Awesome. Jesus loves us as the Father loves Him. Just think about that. We're not worthy. We're not deserving. We're rebels apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are totally depraved, without aid. We are dead in our sins. And that God has come in Christ to save us. And Jesus loves us. Just as the Father. He's declaring this to these 12 men who will become the foundation of the church as John describes in the Revelation. What a glorious truth. What a condescension of grace. That the Father should love the Son. We would say, well, He's worthy. He loves him as the Son of God, but again, remember, he's speaking from the vantage point of being the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Mary, the mediator on the earth, that that God should love him. He's sinless. He's pure. He's undefiled. He's the man of God. He's the man of God's own choosing. He is the sacrificial lamb that the Father has sent so that the death angel would pass over us. We could say, well, of course the Father loves him. He's worthy of love. 
He's attractive, all is together lovely in his obedience before the Father. But Jesus says, none of you, his dear children, you hear that, saved, saved by grace. Jesus says, I love you. I love you as my Father loves thee. What a glorious truth. We also learn that Jesus is, or the Father has given all things into his hand. So that with Him, He freely gives all things. Here, we hear of Him giving His love. Well, if Jesus loves us as the Father loves Him, will Jesus withhold anything from us that we need? No. He bestows upon us all that is necessary. The Father gave Jesus, not only as the mediator, He's given Him all this authority, the ability to give unto us, but also as the head of the church. God the Father has given to Him the ability to bestow all things on us. Jesus is therefore entrusted with divine grace. He's the one who brings us to the Father. He's entrusted with divine grace not only for His benefit, but also for all those whom the Father has given Him. Because we know the Scripture teaches that before the foundation of the earth, Father looked, the Father, God, looked upon humanity and He appointed some for salvation in Christ. It's all in Christ. Even the electing grace of God was in Christ. And the Father has given to the Son, and the Son has come to do the will of the Father to redeem those that the Father has given to Him. It's a particular atonement and a particular salvation so that we become the children of God. So just as the Father is well pleased with His Son, and the Son, the Father, is well pleased with us. We took time in our worship service a few moments ago to confess our sins. We do so every week. We should do so in our private prayers every day. We sin all the time. But here's the reality. The Father is well pleased with us in Christ Jesus. When we sin, the Father doesn't say, well, I'm going to take that one and send him over here for a shelf and see if he, on the shelf and see if he figures it out. What's his next step? But the Father continues to love us so that he even sends the Holy Spirit to stir our conscience, to trouble our conscience, to, to bring us to confession and repentance. Such is the Father's love for us. In the Son, the Father is well pleased with us. And in Jesus Christ, we are accepted by the Father. From the beginning to the end and all along the way, we are accepted in Christ. Thus, Jesus loves those the Father has given to Him. Can we not say, O glorious mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, glorious Redeemer. Oh, how great a salvation the Father has bestowed upon us in His Son, Jesus of Nazareth. For the next little bit, I'm going to follow Matthew Henry. I don't know that I quote him, but I'm following him. as He points out that because of this reality, Jesus then provides four proofs and products of His love. As I understood Him, He gives three proofs and then a product of this love that Jesus has for his disciples. The first is that Jesus, the good shepherd, loved his sheep and therefore he laid down his life for them. That's a proof of love, is it not? That he laid down his life. We see to what extent Jesus would go. He knew what we were. He knew what we had. What do we have apart from Christ? A righteousness. We had a righteousness as filthy rags. The language speaks of the most disgusting and despicable things of filth that we can imagine. That's what our righteousness was like. And Jesus loved us to that extent. He knew the cost. 
It was his life for our life. Even to this extreme, Jesus was willing to go to do the will of the Father. Jesus uses this relationship that we might understand. Uh, he speaks of a friend laying down his life for a friend. You know, that's, we think of our human relationships. We can imagine that we're with a friend in some situation. You know, I've seen little clips on uh, YouTube or other social media where someone is in harm's way. Uh, they don't know it, that there's a car racing at them and, and a friend dies to knock them out of the way, even at the risk of being struck themselves. We've heard of people even rescuing strangers off from uh, subway tracks just before the train flies into the station. There's, there's, this, there's this, this remarkable love, a sacrificial love that as humanity made in the image of God that we have a, a capacity to demonstrate, even to carry out. But how much more so you see a given situation and you really to give your life for your friend. You love them. Your life for their life. It's not a saving sacrifice. It's, it's out of a love for them and our, their well-being, for their protection that we might even lay down our life for a friend. And so Jesus gives this as a picture. He says, verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And so that truth is true, but Jesus takes it to a whole other level because we're unworthy, undeserving. And the sacrifice necessary to save our life means he dies, not just a death, but he dies the death of a substitute. He dies the death of taking on our sin and experiencing the full rate of God's wrath on his humanity that we would never know the wrath of God. That's what he has done. And so we see this excellency of Jesus' love that exceeds all others. As I mentioned, others have laid down their life for someone they love. But here's Jesus in comparison and with a contrast. You think about you know, my life for a friend's life. You can say there's something about them that they're relatively equal, right? We, we won't consider you know, accumulated wealth or net worth, which is so important to men. But they're two human lives, essentially of an equal value. But then we consider the Lord Jesus Christ's life and our life. It's 10,000 times 10,000 more, infinitely more of greater value. And he, did, he laid down his life for his friends. A people who are at war with God Almighty, including him as God the Son. Our rebellion was against him. Even as he went to the cross to redeem rebels, we were in rebellion against him, and yet he came to redeem a people we see the second proof in the text that Jesus loved his people is seen in how he takes us into a covenant of friendship with him. Look at verse 14. He said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you my friends for all things that I have heard from my father. I have made them known to you. Many of you have been in, have been in, and are in a workplace setting. Uh, you go into the work, you know, your boss doesn't say, "Hey, I want you to come in here. I want to tell you everything's on my agenda for today." Nobody getting any work done. He doesn't. He doesn't develop. You you work for him. You're a servant, and you have your to dos, and you go do your tasks. You carry them out. Perhaps you have something of a friendship with your boss, but 
He's always the boss and you're always the one supervised. Unless perhaps you're the boss, right? But Jesus says to mere mortals, those whom he loves, and indeed, brightly we call us servants. We are. That language is used of us. Other way, Paul used it himself. He says, I'm like the lower oarsman in a, in a Roman galley, which is the worst place in the world to be. We won't go into that. You probably have heard that illustrated. But that's really, that's, that's our value. But Jesus says, no, no longer will I call you servants. I call you my friends. And he says, it's not just a new label for you. He says, you're my friends so much so that I will reveal to you my plans. I will make known to you my agenda. I will lay out before you what I have and uh, determined to do over the course of human history. And I will reveal to you the will of my Father. That's what Jesus goes on to say. Notice it's conditional though. He says, if you do, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Wouldn't be much of a friendship if you're always in opposition, disagreeing, arguing, pushing back, uncooperative. Wouldn't make for much of a friendship, would it? Being one of those friendships you say, you know what? What's, what's the language they I'm just going to ghost them, right? But Jesus even knowing our frailty and infirmities calls us friends. Now again, we don't gain this friendship, we don't get this status with the Lord Jesus Christ because of securing our salvation by doing what He says. So when He says, you are my friends, if you do whatever I command you, that doesn't say, okay, I've obeyed Him, so I go from the status of being disobedient, rebellious, to being redeemed in Christ. No. We're friends. We're his friends. We're already in this relationship with him. It'll be manifested by what we do. It'll become evidence. Jesus saves all those whom the Father has given to him. And all those that the Father calls will come to Christ. Even all those whom the Father has given to the Son. But to these, Jesus says, these are my friends. Now, how shall it be known who the friends of Jesus are? Well, he says, if you are my friends, you do whatever I command you. That's how we're known. One of the things we struggle with is assurance. I've had conversations with a number of you in the course of my ministry in your midst, and, and I get it. You know, we struggle with assurance. And there's times when we don't have it, and usually we can trace it back to some disobedience, some rebellion. Perhaps we persisted in it, or maybe it's, it's a sin that we, do, that we think is so great that the grace is not greater. And we need to be reminded and all those things of the truth of the gospel that need to be brought to bear. But how is it that we know? Where, where, where's the comfort? What is it to abide in Christ? We, we love Him. We pursue Him. We obey Him. Uh, we're doing that which He has made available for us to do. We're taking up that which He's given and we, we use it to draw near to Him. And that's what it is to abide in Christ. Jesus has taught this before. Back in verse uh, 34 35 of chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. We're going to come to that again in this passage. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. All will know would include me and you. We'll, we'll know that we're His disciples because we have love one for another. 
It's an evidence that the work of grace has happened in our hearts. He's accomplished in chapter 14, verse 15. He reiterated, if you love me, keep my commandments or my precepts. And then again in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. There's this theme here. And if he, he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, it's not that we should have a change in our status. But indeed, it's because of who we are in Christ that we will do these things. These are the ones who are grafted into the true vine by faith. These are branches who are in Christ and abiding in Christ by obeying Christ and loving Him and loving one another. These are the ones who are alone able to bear fruit to the glory of the Father, fruit that pleases the Father, then we could say is obedience. That's what Jesus has said about Himself. He abides in the Father's love. He's obeyed the Father. I only do the will of my Father. I only do what I see Him doing. I only say what I hear Him saying. There's this obedience. And thus Jesus was abiding in the Father. And He calls us that if we would keep His commandments, we abide in Him. And we'll be fruitful before Him. The third proof in the text is Jesus' love for His people results in a change of status. To all these, He gives a, a new title. No longer servants, but friend. This isn't a change of relationship out of the kingdom of darkness into light, but in the kingdom of Christ, there's a change. We're no longer considered servants, but friends. And this friendship with Jesus results in his people. What does he say? Knowing all that he has heard from the Father, he says, I made known to y'all. Jesus not only knows and loves his own, but he lets them know what he is doing. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus lets us know what He's doing. You might say, Pastor, how in the world are we supposed to know this? Isn't that what everybody wants to know? How do I know the will of God? I have all these questions. How do I know what God wants me to do? I, I, I just picked up a new little book at the Twin Lakes Fellowship. And uh, I'm forgetting the title, but it's basically like to just do something. You want to know what the will of God is? Just start doing things consistent with what you know. And the Lord will direct your status. I can remember when I was some of you young people's age that I'd heard from the pulpit, you know, God doesn't steer parked cars. You know, get pull off from the curb. Get out in the traffic. Start moving forward. But really, it's not even like that. You want to know what the will of God is? Read the Word. Read the Word as you're going through life. Live by those principles and precepts there. That's what it is to abide in Christ. And God will direct your steps. He governs all His creatures, all their actions. And it's not this big mystery. You don't want to sit around on the couch just waiting for some thunderbolt to strike you. Go, aha, now I know what to do. No, go about the things that the Father has revealed to us. Weekly worship. Gather with the saints. Keep the commandments. Obey and honor those who are over you in the Lord. Walk out life. And it will become clear to you. But especially, know the Word. We must study to show ourselves approved. Workmen that need not be ashamed. Workmen do something, right? Workmen doing things that we know to do. But as Paul writes to Timothy, a young ministry, he said, These things then entrust them to faithful men who will in turn entrust them to faithful men. I would apply that in the home. Parents, what you learn, entrust what you learn to your children. Instruct them in the things that you know. If you don't know it, admit it, I don't know. You know, if your child has a question, say, I need to talk to one of the elders. I need help. But what you know and 
impart it to them. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Read the Word of God to your children. Because in so doing, you're fulfilling the Great Commission. What is it? Go and make disciples. Parents, you can do this. You're doing this. Make disciples, teaching them whatsoever things I have commanded you. And we learn the Word of God. We learn to walk in it. The fourth item that uh, Matthew Henry, I think, rightly brings out of the text, I, I consider this one to be a product. It's a product of all these, these previous three. His people become God's chosen instruments for displaying His glory and honor in the world. Where's the glory and honor displayed? The glory and honor of God, where is it displayed? It's displayed in us. Consider what we are, what we were. And consider what we've become. God has worked supernaturally to take dead sinners and raise them to newness of life in Christ. And then He's working in these flawed, disfigured creatures that Christ would be formed in them and the Father is displayed. The glory of God is displayed amongst the men. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light, it's a light that originates with Him, but let your light, it's in you, so shine before men that they will see your good works. That's fruitfulness. And will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus has chosen us to be His instruments for displaying His glory in the world. As we saw in the previous passage, our fruitfulness as branches is a result, a result in glory being ascribed to the Father. That's what we had in uh, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Our fruitfulness brings glory to God. We know that inherently. When we disobey and we sin and we're convicted, we're shamed. We know we brought shame to the name of the glory of God. We've not walked consistently with our profession Perhaps you know it's happened to you like it's happened to me where in the workplace years ago I was called out for conduct unbecoming a follower of Christ. I mean, I was working with unconverted men, but they called me out that you know, I was ashamed. I, I was not bringing glory to the Father by whatever that conduct was at that time. Where on the other side of it is just we're obeying the Father. We bring glory to the Father by our obedience to Him. In verse 16, we see that Jesus' love is also seen in this elected grace, even as we're chosen to be His instruments, and we go into the world living for His glory, God would use us to draw and bring others. In verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now this is particularly true in this situation, in that room, it's these 11 apostles set before Him. There's going to be a 12th one. Is it Matthias? Is it Paul? We won't settle that argument. I don't know if we can, but there'll be 12. There's 12 foundation stones in the New Jerusalem, the church, the city of God. But here's these 11. And he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Remember Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. Jesus comes by and says, come, follow me. Matthew didn't say, hey, can I be one of your disciples? No, he's about his tax collecting business. Jesus chose him. He says, I chose you and I appointed you. That word can be translated ordained you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give it to you. So we see God's electing grace at work in Christ. We see God's ordaining, appointing grace. He appointed these men for apostleship. That they should be laid as foundation stones alongside of next to, in alignment with the chief cornerstone who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That they they and their lives would be built 
upon his ministry, a continuation of his ministry through them as the church. We see that Jesus' love is also in giving them access to the throne of grace. Do you notice that at the end of the verse? That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. We heard that earlier, didn't we? Whatever you ask in my name. But it's to say, praying in accordance with the will of God. Thus, we need to know the Word of God. But we ask in Jesus' name that God will give it. We, because Jesus loves us, we have access. These men had a unique responsibility as apostles. But the overarching, the general principle applies to us. Are you a new creature in Christ? Have your sins been washed away? Are you united to Christ by faith? You have access to the throne of God. It would have been clamor for today. Now, if I could just meet with the president, many would say, I got a thing or two I'd tell him. Right? We want this access to powerful men, powerful people, in powerful positions. Jesus says, You have it. The throne of grace, the throne room of God. You come to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit assisting you to pray. That is yours because Jesus loves you. No one can take that away. You can be locked in a gulag, a, a, a room, barely enough room to move, and you're in darkness and they throw some swill through a little porthole that you try to get something from for nourishment, and that's all you have. Perhaps your wounds are on your back, uh, bleeding and scabbing over. They think they've cut you off from everything. Maybe they have from the world because you love the name of Christ, but they cannot cut you off from the throne of grace. That's marvelous. We have access to the throne of grace in Christ Jesus because Jesus loves us. He's given that to us. This is a product of what he's accomplished. Thirdly, the disciples love for Jesus. Jesus now moves to call for a response of love from his disciples in light of what he has declared and the truth he has revealed to us. What should we say in response to what we've heard? The love of the Father for Christ and then Christ loving us as the Father loves Him. There's only one right response. We should love Christ. And through Him we love the Father. Think of the great love that Jesus has bestowed upon us. We we sing hymns of, oh how marvelous. Oh how wonderful is Jesus' love for me. Love divines all love excelling. There's many, many hymns that we celebrate this love of God. Why? Because it's true. And so Jesus then rightly exhorts his people to do three things. And again, these are not done to gain salvation. This is for those who have salvation. Those who are in Christ. Three things. Three exhortations from our, our, our master. Let me just say, if you don't have Christ, if you're not in Christ, you're not united to Christ by faith, these things are impossible. Indeed, everything that Jesus would exhort you to do or call his people to do, you cannot do it. You need to be right with God through Christ first. That's by faith alone. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Why do you linger? Why do you you stand on the sidelines watching what Christ is doing in the world through his church? Come to Christ and join in this great band that is serving the Lord of glory. But Jesus gives us three exhortations. Again, think of these as proofs of the new life in Christ. First, we should have the want to 
and then the ability to do. And you remember what Paul writes in Philippians? It is God who works in you both to will and to do, the want to and the power to do. And so as we hear these things, verse 9, Jesus, as the fathers loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. That's an exhortation. Children, maybe you can think of it this way. You've seen people perform on the stage and you know, there's somewhere up in the back there's a spotlight and they turn it on and it illuminates that one central character. What's happening in the scene? I can think of some of the comedies that I've seen you know, where the person steps out of the light and the, the, the spotlight's trying to follow them around. But Jesus says, abide in my love. Just stay in the light. Just stay in the light. Where, where Jesus is, He's the light. Just stay in the light. Don't try to wander away from Him and go off and find something to do in the darkness. Just stay in the light. Abide in my love. Indeed, we must, as Paul writes in Romans 8.13, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh that we would live. Secondly, Jesus exhorts us to let His joy remain in us to fill us up. He says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Think about this. Children, I was thinking of you as I was thinking of this point. Even you young children, there are times when your father, your mother says, go do this. You, know, maybe it's, you need to go pick up your toys and get ready for supper. Uh, I want you to go take a bath, put your pajamas on, and then we're going to pray together. You're told to do something. Your, your parents command you to do something, and you head off to the bedroom, and oh, those Legos are so inviting. Or maybe it's dolls or a screen, I hope not. But something captivates your attention. 15 minutes go by, 30 minutes go by, and you have not done what your mother or your father told you to do. You're in trouble. You're disobeying. And then you hear the footsteps of your parent coming. Do you have joy in that moment that you're going to get to see your mom and dad shortly? You want to hide because you're not abiding in them. You're not obeying them. You, you want to run from them. You, you, but let's flip it around the other way. Your mom and dad says, go pick up your bed. You know, pick up your room. Put your jammers on. Get ready for bed. You go up, and you do it, and you hear your mother, your father approaching. You're waiting for them. You stand at the door. You say, see, I did it. There's joy. You have joy and delight in the presence of your parent because you've obeyed them. You've done your will. Parents, people, adults, of all this is what Jesus is talking about. If we abide in Christ, we're obeying Christ, we're basking in the love of God and by the Spirit keeping the commandments of God, we don't need to be fearful in the cool of the day when we hear the Father approaching. Joyful to come to him. We're joyful that he approaches us. And our joy is full. Because by his grace, through the Holy Spirit, we have been obedient. Many times we come for corporate worship and we kind of slog our way through the door. We're here because we know we should be. Maybe we learn from experience it's the best place to be in our condition. But maybe you don't show up with joy. Because you didn't clean up your bedroom or whatever. Going back to the illustration. But as you hear, you hear the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of God. And you're reminded of the great truths of the gospel. And your, your joy is renewed. Your sins are forgiven. 
Your relationship with Christ and with the Father through Christ, it's not altered. You confess your sins, you restore the right fellowship, and the joy of the Lord restores you. Your joy can begin to be filled up again. Thirdly, Jesus exhorts us to give evidence of our love by keeping His commandment. Again, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Stay in the spotlight. Stay in the center of God's will. Don't do what you know Him that He would have you to do. Don't sin and rebel. There's a condition to the promise. It's if you keep my commandments. We're not keeping the commandments. We're in trouble. We don't lose our salvation. We don't fall out of grace. But our joy is hindered. Jesus says, if you love me, obey me. By this, then, we have assurance of salvation. By this, the world knows that we are saved to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. By this, we are salt in an unsavory world and we are light in a dark place. We've heard these three exhortations. But you must understand that if you do not have new life in Christ, these are not commands for you. These are for those who are in Christ. Jesus' command to you, if you're apart from Christ, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what he says to the one apart from him. Well, finally, and more briefly, we'll consider the disciples' love for one another. The final commandment that we have to those who have this new life in him, this too is for those who are true branches that are abiding in Christ, united to Christ by faith. We see it in verse 12 and in verse 17. Jesus says it twice. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Now look at verse 12 again. We were marveling that Jesus says, just as my Father has loved me, I love you. In verse 12, he says, this is my commandment that as I have loved you, love one another. Where does that love originate? The Father's love through Christ to us, then to love one another. We don't have this love within ourselves. We have to be in Christ. We need to abide in Christ. We need to be basking in the joy and the communion and fellowship of Christ in order to love one another in this manner. Jesus gives the pattern, as I have loved you. This Christ-like love is not an emotion. It's not an emotion. It's decisional. You determine to love. You choose to love. It's also, Christ-like love is sacrificial love. Is that not what Jesus shows us? He laid down His life for His friends. The Good Shepherd gave His life for the sheep. This Christ-like love is costly life. It requires us laying down our life for others, not uh, to save them. But we're, we sacrifice. We, we die to self. We, we set aside something we would do. Maybe it's financial resources or time. We set it aside and sacrifice to help somebody else. I experienced this. Don and I experienced this uh, Saturday a week ago. And some of you, you had your Saturday. We all got plenty to do on Saturdays, right? And yet, some of you said, you know what? I'm going to make a sacrifice for Pastor and his wife. Because you loved us. You, you decided to come and to give of your energy and of your time to help us with the move. It's just a, a, a simple illustration of what Jesus is talking about here. We, we died to our own will to do what is good for others. We deny ourselves to serve the people of God. But also, we're grateful that God we praise through our sacrifice. Loving others will involve many things. 
But we can think of it most clearly when we remember the second great commandment. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. We're reminded often, well, that's really summing up. You know, honor those who are over you in the Lord. As we heard today, uh, protecting and respecting our neighbor's chastity. Before that, protecting and promoting life. Uh, respecting and protecting our neighbor's property. And respecting and protecting our neighbor's good name and all truth. And being content with what we have. And content with what our neighbor has. Loving our neighbor looks like keeping the commandments. The second great commandment. Loving our neighbor. We've seen in this text then the Father's love for Jesus, Jesus' love for His disciples, the disciples' love for Christ, and the disciples' love for one another. I handled almost every single book I own in the last two or three days as was unpacking. <laughs> it's a little bit overwhelming. One of our elders said to me, uh, Pastor, we're organizing an intervention. You have a problem. <laughs> but this, this, you touch some of them and you remember reading them. But I picked up just a little book by Robert Murray Machine. If you have not read the memoir and remains of Robert Murray Machine, please do. It's a little book of his, and I had to open it. You know what the title was? Love for Christ. What was my preaching on? You, you just heard it. So I opened it up, and I was skimming through it. And Robert Murray Machine sums up nicely what love for Christ is. This is what it looks like. Devotion to Christ. Obedience to Christ. And complete conformity to Christ. It captures what we've just heard from Jesus' own mouth. And in a quote from him, it says, The soul that has once seen, a soul that has once seen the loveliness of Christ leaves all to follow him. We leave all to follow him. These, these are not burdens for us. When we've seen Christ, when we see his loveliness, we delight in Him. We know the joy. We want to obey Him. We kick ourselves like a dog when we disobey. We shouldn't spend long doing that. Just bleed to Christ. He's lovely. He's altogether lovely. Our theme has been that love and joy are perfected in obedience by those who have new life in Christ. When we are born again, it is our desire and our delight to love Jesus and keep His commandments. Jesus taught this lesson to the church. So that our joy would be full and remain in us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. O living, glorious God, we marvel that you would stoop to reveal these things to the sons of Adam. We marvel that you would stoop to save such a people as we are, but Lord, as a redeemed people, oh, how you delight in us. Lord, having heard these things, stir us up to greater delight in you, that indeed that we would see the loveliness of Christ and leave all to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand together and sing, Lord, with glowing heart I praise you, number 80.